Well, it's good to be in Bible class again uh, this evening. We hope and pray that all will go well and we can learn a lot uh, together this evening. We want to begin with prayer and then we'll get started uh, in our lesson. Let's bow together. Well, Holy Father, we are mindful that you are holy, that you are loving, that you're great, that you're kind, that you're awesome, Father. And we come, Father, and we thank you for hearing our prayers. And Father, we are fully persuaded that you are who you claim to be. And we're so grateful, Lord. We're grateful for every single blessing of life. We know, Father, that we can't count all the blessings that are ours from day to day because of your great love. But we are especially mindful, Father, of the opportunity of salvation in your Son, Jesus Christ. And for that, we continue to thank thank you every day, every opportunity that we have. Lord, we're thankful that we can read about this great story of redemption in the Scriptures, and we're thankful we can open up your book this evening. Bless everyone who's here. Bless everyone who is listening in uh, wherever they're at. Lord, bless us all with a greater desire to be who you'd have us to be. Oh Lord, we are grateful that our Bible classes are taking place. We're thankful that our little ones are able to study and learn and memorize and create great memories of being in Bible class. We pray, Father, this will be a great profit to them, not only now, but throughout their lives. We pray for our parents. We pray for our moms, our dads. We pray for all our families, Lord. And we pray that we'll all seek to bring our children up in the nurture and admonition of who you are, Lord, how you'd have us to be. Lord, we are mindful of the sin in this world. And we pray, Father, that we realize each of us transgresses your will from time to time. We're grateful, Father, for the salvation, for the forgiveness that's found through the blood of our our Lord Jesus. But, Father, we are also mindful that many do not know of the, the danger of their soul because of sin. And Father, we pray that we may so teach and spread your word to help other people to see their need of you. And so Father, we examine ourselves this evening. And Father, we continue to do this as your word says to see if we are in the faith Lord, we pray your blessing upon everyone who may not be feeling well this evening. We pray that things may get better really soon. We pray your blessing upon those who have lost their loved ones over the uh, past few weeks or months or even over the years, Father. We pray, Father, that you would help, that you would help us. Father, we come to you with our hurts and our desires, and we know, Father, that you are there and you will do what's best for each of us. Lord, now be with us as we examine several scriptures together 
And help us, Father, that we may be stronger tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take a slight break from our series we've been on. We've been talking about some of the culture surrounding us, the sins, the the sins that are thrown at us uh, from our society, thrown right into our face, and we've been talking about those. We're not making a complete break from it, but because we'll see some of this in the scriptures that we'll study tonight. But why are we taking a break? I'll tell you why. Because I can't handle it. I can't handle it. I can't. The things we've talked about the last two weeks, I can only talk about that every so often. It makes me sick. And it um, disturbs me that people are that gullible. And that wicked. So I need uh, God's word. I need all of it. And so we're going to look at um, what I'm calling tonight simply Jesus and Jeremiah. Jesus and Jeremiah. And you'll see that we will always be dealing with culture. We'll always be dealing with the world because Jeremiah did and Jesus did. Everybody does. But we need God's word. We need all of it. So here we go. Uh, Jesus and Jeremiah, and we'll look at three situations. Three situations. The first situation is the weeping situation. The weeping situation. The second situation is the temple, the temple situation. And then as we have time, the third will be the covenant, the new covenant situation. So let's start in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. And you will recall that Jeremiah is one of those prophets that was assigned by God to warn his people back in Old Testament times that if they do not change their ways, then certain captivity was heading their way. In the midst of many proclamations, we find Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 31 in verse 15. 31 verse 15. Thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So Rachel here would be the wife of Jacob. Not that she's still alive, but that she is being used here in a figurative way of showing that there's a need to weep for God's people the 12 tribes of Israel. Ramah here is a place about five miles north of Jerusalem. And so in other words, there's a lot of weeping going on in Jerusalem. Or there is a prediction here of weeping going on in Jerusalem. So why? Why would Jeremiah be predicting weeping? Simply because 
already, by the time he says this, the northern kingdom of Israel, okay, which comprised about ten tribes, they've already been carried away into Assyrian captivity. And now the southern kingdom is on the verge of being carried away into Babylonian captivity, and it eventually does happen. And so there's a great need for weeping. So Rachel, in a figurative way, is weeping for her children, and it's heard all around. It's heard all around. Okay. And so that prophecy is rather straightforward. Notice it here in Jeremiah 31. That if you keep uh, reading in verse 16, Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, uh, declares, the war, the, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Right? So notice how the prophecy goes. Yes, you will be going away into Babylonian captivity, but good, you're going to be coming back in 70 years. So this prophecy mentions both of those things. Right. Go back in your Bible to Jeremiah 25 for just one second. Jeremiah 25. He says, Jeremiah 25 verse 11, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. See that? 70 years. And so, yes, they're going, but temporarily. Okay. Now, for us, 70 years is a lifetime. And it is. But uh, the nation will come back um, in 70 years. Now, let's see how this prophecy is used over Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Still talking about the weeping factor Matthew 2, you recall, here comes the wise men. What are they doing? They have seen his star in the east. Whose star have they seen? Okay. Jesus. Jesus is now a little toddler, and they have come to worship the king. Herod hears about this, and it upsets him because he sees this as a threat. So he looks to the wise men. He says, now when you find him to worship, Come and tell me so I can come and worship him too. Okay, typical politician here. He has other things going on in his mind. But he said, I'll come worship him. But God warns the wise men, do not go back to Herod. You find another way to go home. And so they do that. And at the same time, God warns Joseph to take Mary and the child and go to Egypt. Go to Egypt about 7,500 miles away. You take off and you go to Egypt because Herod's going to seek to kill the child. And that brings us down to Matthew 2 and verse 16 to 18. And sure enough, when Herod finds out that he has been tricked by the wise men, he gets very angry and he kills all the male children in Bethlehem from two years old and down. And again, like in old times, so in the same area, there's a great deal of weeping. great deal of weeping. So the prophecy of Rachel weeping for her children is taken by Matthew here in New Testament times 
and applied to this situation with Jesus and the escape uh, to Egypt. Okay. This is no problem for God because God is omniscient. God knows and can see, he can see across the years. And so it's no problem for God to observe what would happen both in both cases. What's going to be the circumstances that happen in Jeremiah's day? with Babylonian captivity, and what's going to be the circumstance that's going to happen in Jesus' day when he's a little boy. And so God is able to see all of that, know all of that, make application here in Scripture, and also make some predictions about this. So what you hear, have here in Jeremiah 31 is you've got a prediction of captivity and a return in 70 years. But that's only the partial fulfillment of what is said in Jeremiah 31 with Rachel weeping. The ultimate and complete fulfillment is found here in Matthew 2 with the weeping that's going on in Bethlehem. Now, notice the resemblance. This is where it's really um, hard to say good because it's a very sad situation, but it's meaningful to us. Notice the resemblance. In Jeremiah's day, it's going to be bad because it's bad when another nation comes in and takes over another nation. There's a lot of killing. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of, there's a lot of hurt. And people are going to be taken away from, from the land. But the joy behind that is they get to come back in 70 years. So temporary suffering leading to a joy. Okay. Notice it here. Notice that same resemblance, that same pattern here in Matthew 2. There's a massacre here when Jesus is little, but this will be leading to joy when Jesus begins his ministry, his soul-saving ministry. When Jesus grows up and begins his ministry and begins to train his disciples and train his apostles, and he begins to go everywhere teaching and doing wondrous works, and eventually that leads to the church. And so, notice the pattern of temporary suffering. Yes, there in Bethlehem. Yes, done by a very evil ruler. Yes, but this is a precursor to what would happen in Jesus' ministry, which leads to us. Leads to us. This is where we come in. We come in here with the joy of Jesus' ministry because... We're involved in that as well. We ought to be. This is what God expects of us. He expects of us to jump into the ministry of Jesus, become his disciples, and become a follower of him and be involved in his work from here on out. God is not orchestrating any physical captivity today. That's Old Testament times. The captivity that God is interested in today is that which comes from sin. You remember in John 8 and 34 that Jesus in that little contest is talking about freedom. Like John 8, 32, you shall know the truth. And what happens? Truth shall make you free. Well, John 8, 34, he says, whoever continues in sin becomes a slave of sin. He becomes a bondservant of sin. That's the captivity that God is interested in today. That's the captivity that God is, um, he has assigned us 
and all followers of Jesus to be involved in, to help people come out of that spiritual captivity, which we desperately uh, need. Okay. And so this, this, all of this weeping factor here brings us to the joy, really, of Jesus' ministry. Now, there's going to be hard times in Jesus' ministry, but those hard times will lead to even more faith and joy. Notice a passage with me, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Let me run over to 1 Peter chapter 1. Notice this with me. Peter addresses hard times in being a disciple of the Lord. 1 Peter 1 verse 6. 1 Peter 1 verse 6. In this you rejoice. Yes, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, as was necessary... You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible, that is unspeakable. Now notice how that works. You're involved in the ministry of Jesus. Tough times come because you're a disciple of the Lord. It's coming. It's coming. But you hang in there, and you begin to understand that the more the world comes at you, and the stronger you are. And you begin to believe that though you don't see the Lord, you know He's blessing you. And you know that you're doing what He would have you to do. And that's going to lead to a joy that is unspeakable. So that's the pattern that's set up here with this prophecy uh, from Jeremiah. It's so important for us to understand where we are at in God's history. We're not involved in physical captivities anymore. God has set up the great commission, the work of His Son, and that is our sole thrust. That's our sole purpose for being here. That's, that encompasses our life from here on out. And we are uh, honored and we are um, happy to be involved in the ministry of Jesus. Notice another passage with me, Philippians uh, 2, right quick. This would be about verse 13. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. But I want you to see where we're at. Philippians 2, uh, 13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It is God who works in you. This is where we're at now. It is God who works in you to both will and to work for His good pleasure. Okay. So it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. This is God's will. It has not changed since Jesus was here on this earth. It's the same, it's the same will. It will not change regardless of anything that comes about. It will not change. We must be involved in His work uh, from here on out as long as we have breath as long as someone is on this earth, as long as we're here, then we must be helping people 
with their sin and with our sin and with the need uh, for Jesus. Now, let me ask you, before we get to the temple factor, please run back with me to, to Jeremiah 31 again. Let me show you, let me show something there or notice something there that I hope is helpful. Jeremiah 31, I'm going to read just a little bit past verse 15 again. Just pick up in verse um, 17. He says, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. Ephraim representing uh, God's people here. I've heard Ephraim grieving, saying, You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined. Like an untrained or unruly calf, bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. What's going on here Here in verse uh, 18? God is saying, you will learn from the captivity. Right now they were uh, thirsty for other gods. Uh, right now they had no need for, for the true God. They were doing their own thing. But the captivity would teach them that, that truly they had been like an unruly calf. Right? When you think about an unruly animal, unruly calf, untrained calf, it, it's one who refuses to get in the yoke, you know, to, to be hooked up to the plow so that uh, that calf can be useful. It's one that's so unruly you just about can't get him hooked up. That's the state of someone who is in sin. It's the state Ephraim is saying here, this is how I was, but now I want to be back to the Lord. I think that's interesting because Jesus talked about the yoke, didn't he? Matthew chapter 11, 28 through uh, 30. Mark, run over and read that for us if you don't mind. Matthew chapter 11. Let's listen to Jesus talk about the yoke and how that is really an appropriate way of talking about living for Christ. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. What do you think of when you think of a yoke? Well, you're getting an animal ready to work, right? to be useful, to be profitable. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. When one becomes a Christian, do they understand? Does one understand that you are signing up for the yoke? That you are as you come out of the baptistry, okay, you are putting that yoke of Christ on you so that you can be useful to Him. It's an automatic situation where you go from being a servant, Romans 6, verse 17, 18, you, become, you go from being a servant of sin to a servant of righteousness. You take on the yoke. You know. Before we come to Christ, we're an unruly animal. We're un, we, 
we refuse uh, to be yoked up. A lot of people that identify with Christ now refuse to take the yoke on them. Okay. What happened? Did they understand conversion in the first place? Or did they understand it and now they don't like it? We're just human beings. We don't know. But I do know this. We must do a better and better job of teaching when we're leading someone to Christ that we're not through teaching. We're not through understanding until we understand that this process includes being added to the church. What's the church? The church is the vineyard where we work. The church is the army where we fight. The church is, takes on the yoke of Christ. And, and we, we're just getting started. Just, we're really just getting started. All right. So that's the weeping factor. Any particular comment you want to make from Jeremiah 31 to Matthew 2 uh, in regard to this fulfillment and what it means to us? Okay. It's 7.30, which gives us time to go to the next one, which would be the, what I call the temple factor. This comes from Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11. And then there's a fulfillment of this in Jesus' ministry. Well, in Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11, what Jeremiah is doing, he's, he's giving out reasons why they would be going to captivity. That's the way God is. If he's going to punish us, he's going to first tell us why he's punishing us. And he's also going to give us an opportunity to avoid that punishment. So here in Jeremiah 7, without being just in real detail, we don't want to get... Uh, in, for this purpose, this is not really a detail. This is, this is kind of a survey of Jeremiah 7. I want you to, to know this. First, the, the people... Jeremiah's talking to his own people. They had a false security with the temple. With the temple. And you'll see it there in Jeremiah 7, verse 1 through 11. Uh, they were taught to say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Well, what's that all about? Well, they were taught that there would be no force, no foreign entity that could come and take away God's people from Jerusalem because the sacred temple was there. And so they believed that since the sacred temple was there in Jerusalem and they're there in Jerusalem, then they pretty much got it made. There's not going to be an invading force that's going to come and um, be able to take them away. Okay. Well, Jeremiah had some news for them that if they continued in these sins and in this idolatry, then they're going to see what God will do. So we need to stop and realize um, that no one is so special that they'll never fall from God. Uh, we don't ever get to that point. In fact, again, I, I guess it's one of the reasons I started out this way was uh, a continuous self-examination because none of us are too big to fall. None of us are too special to fall. Uh, Paul says, you know, in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him take heed... How's it go? Take him, take heed lest um, you fall. Let him who thinks he stands. There you go. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I wanted to get the take heed in the front of the verse, but the take heed is in the middle of the verse, at least in my brain. So let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. 
And so the world is of such a nature that it can really consume us to the point where um, the world is first and God is second. Or the world thing, the things of the world is first and God is on down the line third or fourth. So that was one thing that was going on in Jeremiah's day. They had a false security about the temple. Another thing was they were trusting in lying words. The people were believing this because there were prophets, false prophets, who were telling them this. They were telling them, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's one of those kooks. He's, he's one of those nuts, you know. He, he's not speaking from the Lord. Don't, don't listen to him. Nothing is going to happen to this place. We've been here a long time. You know, nothing's going to happen. We've got, the, we've got the temple here. we got, you know, we got the, this is the place of worship. This is where people come to worship. Nothing's going to happen. So they trusted in lying words. And then, another thing they were doing, they were refusing a very great deal. Because if you look right there in Jeremiah 7, God is saying, look, if you will thoroughly, I think it's verse 4, if you will thoroughly repent, if you will, if you will truly repent, then I, I will keep you here. I won't take you away. So you see here in Jeremiah 7, at this point in Jeremiah's uh, proclamation, the people still have an, an opportunity not to suffer the punishment. But they've got to thoroughly repent. Okay. But, um, of course, they don't do that. But they, they, they refuse a gracious, very gracious and good deal God is proposing uh, to them. And then finally, they're involved in hypocritical worship. They are they're going out here and they're doing things like adultery and they're treating people in a, in a, in a very disrespectful way. And they're, they're um, serving Baal, false gods, and other gods as well. But they're also having the nerve to come right on into the temple on the, at the appointed time and go through the ritual of worshiping the true God. Of all the nerve. You know, how could you do that? How, can you, how could someone get out here and do the world's things and then walk into the temple of God and, and say, well, I'm going to worship the Lord? Okay. And the Lord was very displeased with this hypocrisy that was on uh, display. The people were even saying, God is okay with this. God's okay with our fornication. God's okay with us serving Baal. We have been delivered to do this. We've been delivered to do this. One thing that teaches us is that every sin and every uh, perverse subject that we talk about out here in our world, everybody feels justified in doing it. In fact, a lot of people will say God is just okay with that. He's just fine with it. They even put a religious uh, slant to it. And that's what they were doing in, in Jeremiah's day as well. So those four things going on, they had a false security. They were trusting in lying words. They were refusing a very gracious proposition from the Lord. And their worship had become just um, very sour and hypocritical. And those kinds of things will happen today. And so uh, Jesus... Uh, we'll use this passage, but first, notice here, which verse is it in Jeremiah that talks about, has Jesus, all right, Jesus, has uh, Jeremiah saying, you have made this place a den of robbers. Did you pick that up? Verse 11. So notice that. 
Jeremiah says, this sacred temple that you are so uh, attached to and that you have such security in, you have actually made it a den of robbers. So Jesus will use this passage in something that was happening in his day. So let's jump over there. Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. This is, um, again, part of those few days before the cross. And Jesus cleanses the temple, Matthew 21, 12 to 17. This is the second time he's had to do this. If you look back in John 2, Jesus has already had to do this. That's the nature of things, you know. Corruption doesn't stand still. People have a tendency to go back to the corruption that they've already been involved in. So Jesus cleanses the temple in early in his ministry. Read about in John 2, 13. But by the time he gets, you know, now it's been three, three and a half years. Now he's ready to die on the cross. And now look at the temple again. They're going back to doing the very same thing. What had they done? They had made the temple a commercial zone. Commercial zone. Now it was necessary for the Jews when they traveled. Uh, they couldn't bring the animals, many of them could not bring the animals for the sacrifices that were necessary. So when they got to the Judea area, they had to purchase their animals for sacrifice. That's probably why we read in Luke 2 about those shepherds in Bethlehem. Most likely Bethlehem was one of those places that kept the sheep and raised them for people when they come to these feasts during the year to use as sacrifices. But they would have to come and purchase that. But God didn't want this happening in his temple, in the temple area. Okay. Moreover, the, uh, the Hebrews, the Jews, didn't like using Roman money. So a lot of the uh, Jews coming in from various places were day-to-day, every week, operating with Roman money. So when they got to Jerusalem, they had to exchange that for, uh, for Hebrew money. And that exchange rate was um, huge. They were to convert money from the Hebrews to from the Romans to the Hebrews. The Hebrews would would charge extra, much extra. Okay, and Jesus condemns this outright. First, he don't want that business going on in the temple. Secondly, again, you've made this a den of robbers. Okay. In fact, Isaiah fifty-six, verse seven says, God wants his house to be a place of prayer, a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus here in Matthew 21, he uses two prophecies, Isaiah 56 verse 7 and Jeremiah 7, 11. And he combines the two. So God's ideal for his house is to be a house of prayer. and But you have made it a den of robbers because you set it up like a commercial zone. One of the lessons that come to, comes to us from this is that uh, it's just not right to use spiritual things for, pro- for personal profit. That should never be done. Spiritual things for personal profit. It's just, it's, just, um, it's always been wrong, will always be wrong. But think about um, how do you usually view Jesus? No, think about that a lot. Wonder how? Wonder what? What he looked like? 
And um, I don't think he was, um, I, don't, I don't think he looked like me. He didn't look like a sissy. He, he grew up under Joseph, who was a carpenter. And they, and you know, he didn't begin his ministry until he's you know, 30 years older or older. So for 30 years, or for a long time, he was working with his hands, doing that kind of work. Now, notice that one man here, Jesus, clears the temple. Animals in there, turns over the tables. One man gets rid of all these other renegades in there. And he has the physical presence, maybe even the physical intimidation to do it. If I walked in there and I said, guys, we still need to be doing this, you know. No, this is just not right. You need, why don't you take these tables and take them on out. Be reasonable about this. That's not what Jesus did. And if I, if I did it, they'd probably just look at me and say, who are you? There was something about the physical presence of Jesus to where he didn't do just this just once. He, he did it at least twice. You're talking about you're talking about thousands of Jews coming in for the feast, for the Passover feast. It was not, you're not talking about two or three guys. This is, this, is a, this is a hefty business going on here. And he comes in, he puts a stop to all of it. In one sweep, puts a stop to all of it. So um, I just think it's, it's not really a lesson other than just to think about... Um, as you think about the Lord, um, think about how he must have looked when he wasn't on the cross. And when he's on the cross, uh, that's, a different, that's a different situation than him walking around. Walking around before the beatings and before the whippings and before the cross, he must have been something like a healthy human being, more like a Jamie Patterson type. Nathan Lee type rugged looking man I, mean, I would say but that's just kind of um, something to think about so you have the weeping situation here and you've got the temple situation that comes from Jeremiah and then as all of you know um, Jeremiah 31 uh, speaks of a new covenant the new covenant so three major prophecies here. You've got one while Jesus is a little boy. You've got one while Jesus is involved in his ministry. And then you've got this new covenant. And Jesus does speak of his new covenant while he's alive on earth. But really it goes into impact, into effect, after he's, he's already up in heaven on the right hand of God. But there is a new covenant. And so Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is, um, see, you see its fulfillment in Jeremiah 8, verses 8 through 12. Okay, we'll just have to make a reference to that and let that be a future study. But just, for, just to get all, all three of these major prophecies in your mind, remember Jeremiah 31 goes with Hebrews 8. Okay. And this... New Covenant would um, take the place of, take the Old Covenant of Moses and every other uh, religious system of man would, would take the place of all of that. And this, this is now the covenant that
that we are under. It's a new covenant. And there are many reasons why it's a new covenant. But we are at 745. And so um, we just can't go any further. We just can't. We have fulfilled our obligation. We started a little bit late. We started at 702 according to this clock. 703 maybe. So, Everybody doing good? So anything about what we talked about tonight that doesn't make sense? Anything we need to further explain? You can see how that some of these prophecies do tie into our culture. We could, t- we could spend a little bit more time with um, Jeremiah and Matthew too because some of the things that God's people were led into in their faults on their false gods is um, some of them would um, um, in the worship of those false gods would be led to um, destroy their own children. And then in Matthew 2 you see that Herod gets angry and he just um, doesn't have a conscience at all and he destroys children. The destruction of children is is nothing new uh, but it's always an evil. It's always an evil we must stand against. We must stand against that's what God would have us. The Lord God would have us to do. Well, Molech was the title of God that they destroyed the children with burning yeah. alive. Right. In the belly of an idol. Yeah. The God of Molech. You can find that. The valley of Hinnom. Hinnom is where they would burn um, their children. And so we will need to uh, continue to stand against all evil, moral evil um, that is presented in the world and not just to stand against it but to try to help others see um, see the light the light of day on these things good way of putting it. It's counterfeit religion. But in that counterfeit religion, they believed that they ought to do all these atrocities. And it's very similar to what we are seeing more and more of uh, today. Most people that do these things believe that they're, they're good in their soul. Everybody else is doing it, did say. Everybody else is doing it? So we will um, take a break here and uh, have our devotional in about five minutes. Appreciate very much being in class.